It is my distinct pleasure to introduce today's grand round speaker, Joe Paterfar, and uh, he is the chief of uh, the division of otolaryngology, audiology, and maxillofacial surgery at DH. He's also an associate professor um, at Thayer, adjunct associate professor at Thayer, and he obtained his MD at Duke uh, University, and then he did a residency at uh, Washington University at St. Louis, and. Uh, in, also a reconstructive uh, fellowship uh, at the Hanumham Hospital in Philadelphia. His clinical interests are in head and neck oncologic and reconstructive surgery, transoral laser microsurgery, and transoral robotic surgery. And he is really interested in, uh, in minimally in, uh, invasive approaches in surgical navigation and head and neck surgery. Uh, today, in the spirit of uh, recognizing interdisciplinary teams by uh, uh, Synergy and Norris Cotton Cancer Center, uh, he has been awarded a, um, a pilot grant uh, both from Norris Cotton Cancer Center, but today we're highlighting this pilot from Synergy, which uh, funds interdisciplinary work uh, in collaboration with Ryan Halter and also in, in engineering, and his, we've been following his work for several years, and you're, you're in for an exciting talk. So, he, oh, sorry, uh, I have to read the statement. Uh, Dr. Petifar does not have any financial interest, uh, and he does not intend to discuss off-label or in investigational use of product or device, and he's not receiving direct payments from commercial entity with respect to this activity. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. I guess it's uh, afternoon at this point. Uh, and uh, thanks, Yolanda. Thanks to the Cancer Center and Synergy for giving me this opportunity to talk. Uh, if you can't hear me, please uh, let me know. Um, so this is a, a topic that, uh, that I'm very excited about, and I want to share uh, some of the work that uh, my colleagues uh, and I have, uh, have um, made over the last few years since we initially got our Synergy grant. Um, I have no conflicts, uh, and uh, this research, as Yolanda said, is funded uh, through grants from Synergy and the Cancer Center. So um, I know this is a mixed audience of uh, clinicians and non-clinicians, so I'm just going to, uh, if some of this stuff may be elementary or not, but please bear with me. Um, so for cancers of the pharynx and larynx, so basically what we refer to as throat cancers, the main pathology that we're dealing with is squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and this is a fairly common cancer worldwide, about the fifth most common. And in the U.S., we see a, over 60,000 60, cases uh, and 13,000 deaths uh, in what's seen last year. Uh, so the area that we're particularly interested in is um, this area here called the oropharynx, uh, so the back of the throat, and then the hypopharynx, the lower part of the throat, and then the larynx here. So these are the areas that are really going to be the main focus of where our research takes us. Um, and it's been, it's particularly uh, 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 important area uh, to be thinking about because we're seeing a higher uh, incidence of oropharyngeal cancers in the population, especially among younger adults. Um, and this is primarily due to the um, uh, incidence of HPV positive tumors. So the treatments for cancers of the head and neck um, we really have two main modalities that we use, and then those are supplemented by chemotherapy, but it's uh, surgery and, uh, and or radiation therapy. Uh, and then sometimes we'll do radiation plus chemotherapy or even a combination of all three for, for high, uh, highly aggressive tumors. The principle of surgical management is uh, to resect to negative margins. So we don't do debulking uh, except in cases of palliation. 
Um, and really, our uh, treatment goals are to maximize treatment efficacy and minimize toxicity. So usually, if you come to our head and neck tumor board, our conversations are usually focused on this, this uh, sort of principle. So the um, uh, working, trying to, to visualize tumors in the back of the throat can be difficult. Uh, so when you look through someone's mouth, uh, you, you can see back here, but you can't see down here. And this is actually where this patient's cancer is. Uh, similar to this other patient in the base of the tongue. So being able to see those areas is challenging, and being able to access those areas is even more challenging because if you can't see it, you can't access it, and sometimes if you can access it, you still can't, or if you can see it, you still can't access it. So sometimes I feel when I'm operating like the, this cat is trying to drink out of this glass or this poor, I think it's a ferret, who's trying to, he can see the cheese, but he just can't quite get it. Um, so uh, that's kind of how our surgeries sometimes go. Uh, so historically, uh, we've, and I'm sorry, uh, gross pictures during lunchtime, I should have forewarned you, but um, historically we've, um, uh, we've uh, 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 done an approach that's an open approach. So we do a, what's called a transmandibular approach or a transcervical approach. And uh, what this entails, uh, for example, in this case, the transmandibular approach, we make a lip-splitting incision, uh, we have to divide the mandible, we have to move it out of the way, and then cut along all of this really uninvolved tissue uh, along the floor of the mouth and the tongue to get to this tumor in the back of the throat. And once we do that, then we've violated the watertight seal of the throat uh, into the neck. So we've got a contaminated area and a sterile area, and now we've violated that. So we have to reconstruct the throat. We have to borrow tissue from somewhere else in the body to rebuild this and then put it all back together. The patient's swollen. We have to give them a tracheostomy. They're in the hospital for several days, so there's a lot of morbidity associated with this. Uh, and so uh, looking at studies over, uh, over many years, we see that we have um, uh, complication rates that can vary, oops, that can vary uh, anywhere from uh, 10 to 61 percent, uh, depending on the study. So there has to be a better way, and, uh, and because of the morbidity associated with these open approaches, uh, over uh, since the late 80s or so, uh, there was a general trend uh, towards uh, um, applying uh, non-surgical treatments for uh, oropharyngeal cancers and laryngeal cancers, and that was also based on early data that showed very promising results uh, in treating these tumors and still maintaining uh, the organ. Um, and so we see uh, this radiation therapy uh, increasing and a decrease in the in the incidence of surgeries. But this does come at a cost, um, and we're seeing some of these complications in patients who've, who had treatment years ago and now starting to see some of the late effects, but even earlier on. So we'll think, see things like uh, an organ that's present but non-functional. So they, they can't swallow and they have a, a trach in their neck because they, their larynx doesn't work, uh, infections in the bone, very severe fibrosis. Um, uh, we see G-tube dependency rates of 10 to 30%. Uh, depending on the study you're, you're looking at. And then uh, one of the things that is a real uh, difficult issue to deal with are tumors that, um, that come, a second primary tumor. So if you've had one cancer of the head and neck, getting a second one, uh, at that point, really surgery is your only option. Or if you had definitive chemotherapy and radiation and your tumor recurs, again, sal salvage surgery is your only real option. And those patients are extremely difficult to manage uh, from a healing standpoint and uh, even an oncologic standpoint. Uh, so there has been, uh, over the last 15 years or so, there's been a, a progressive paradigm shift towards thinking about more minimally invasive approaches 
uh, to these cancers. And this really sort of came about because of improvements in technologies that, that we have, robotics, laser technology, um, uh, that sort of thing. And so we've, um, we've started uh, applying uh, more minimally invasive approaches such as transoral laser microsurgery and transoral robotic surgery. And, and just I'll sort of briefly talk about these just to kind of frame the whole uh, story here. But uh, transoral robotic surgery, or TORS as it's called, uh, is primarily uh, the uh, realm of the Da Vinci surgical system. Uh, there is another FDA-approved system, but most institutions have the uh, Da Vinci. Uh, it was approved in 2009 for head and neck. We started using this in uh, April of 2010. And I'd say we've done roughly uh, 100 cases or so, of both benign and malignant pathologies. Um, there's a surgical console that the surgeon sits at, and, they, uh, and they're basically viewing the surgical field through a high-definition 3D camera. And uh, they're able to control uh, very fine movements of these instruments that are introduced uh, into the patient. Uh, and you get more degrees of freedom, and uh, you eliminate tremor. Uh, and uh, the only problem is you don't have any haptic feedback, so you can't really feel what you're grabbing. Uh, there, to be able to, if we're using the Da Vinci in the throat, we have to use a conventional retractor to expose the, the throat. So we place a device, and these look like something out of a Saw movie maybe, but we put these devices in that will op keep the mouth open and push the tongue down uh, so that we can then introduce uh, a variety of different instruments into the throat for cutting, grabbing, cauterizing, uh, sewing, and that sort of thing. Uh, so here's an example of, um, of a patient. Uh, they have the retractor in place. The robot is coming in, and you can sort of see, it's a little hard to see on these slides, but this monstrosity of a robot and kind of all these instruments going down into this little itty-bitty opening of the mouth, uh, and we work in that space. We have a, a bedside assistant who, whose job is basically to suction uh, to grab any specimen, uh, to reposition the robotic arms, but to primarily avoid getting hit by these robotic arms as they're wildly swinging around. And uh, this is just an example of how we do a tonsil cancer resection. Um, and you can see that the tongue is here, the soft palate is here, so the, the top of the patient's head is over here. And uh, the point of this video is just to show uh, the, the, what you would see and kind of the, the type of instruments that we use to do these resections. Uh, so the other form of, uh, of minimally invasive approaches that we use is called transoral laser microsurgery, or TLM. And uh, this involves uh, using a, a special metal tube called a laryngoscope. And I want you to sort of pay attention to this because we're going to be coming back to this laryngoscope many times through the rest of the talk. Uh, but basically, we insert this laryngoscope, and, um, and then we have an operating microscope with a laser attached to it and that laser is shot through the laryngoscope, and we can use that to resect uh, our tumor or to intimidate James Bond. <laughs> so the, uh, and the, here's this uh, typical setup. So we have a uh, laryngoscope in place, and this is, device here is called a suspension arm. And again, I want you to pay attention to this because we'll get back to this in a minute. This rests either on the patient or on a um, platform that's placed above the patient. We have the laser that is attached to a big operating microscope, and we look through this the uh, microscope down the laryngoscope, and we shoot our laser beam through there to then resect the tumor. Uh, and this is just an example of a, uh, a superglottic cancer, so a cancer of, uh, sitting above the vocal cords that we've taken out. And we usually use this technique where we divide the tumor into segments so that we can assess the depth 
uh, more easily. Uh, and that's just a post-operative view, what you saw there. And these patients actually do really well. They can swallow normally, and their speech is, um, uh, is normal. Oops, and my, sorry, my computer just died. And this is not related to the talk. It's just a project that I'm working on. Um, uh, I don't know what happened. got so many videos and stuff it's uh yeah I'm not sure why it's not um it's I don't know why it did that it's been working fine all day any questions so far sorry I can't really move forward without uh, uh without our slides here um Okay, um, if you bear with me a second, I'm just going to reboot my computer. I think that will get us back on track. As I'm, as I'm rebooting the system, I can just kind of sort of summarize the, uh, the so the, tra the two transoral approaches I presented to you, these have, have really sort of revolutionized how we can approach these, uh, these tumors and we can offer patients um, an alternative to, um, oh, I'm just rebooting, yeah, I, th I think it just uh, decided that didn't like what I had to say. I just got a frantic phone call. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Don't go too far. Cause I, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, so the... Um, uh, so we can offer this as, a, as an alternative treatment for these patients. But the transoral approaches do have limitations. Um, and uh, once I get my slides up, I can show you the, the, the specifics of the limitations. But basically, um, when, we, when we resect these tumors, we are using what's called an inside-out approach. So we're basically uh, we're, we're seeing the, the throat and the surface anatomy of the throat, but we're not identifying all the critical structures that, that make up the throat. So we don't see nerves, we don't see blood vessels. We can't assess the depth or the extent of the tumor. When we approach tumors from the outside, so when we come in through the neck or, or uh, uh, the approaches that I showed you earlier, everything is in plain view. We see where the carotid artery is. We see where all the nerves are. We can grab the tumor and feel it and assess the extent of it in that way. So we're, we're restricted when we work through the throat by this inside-out approach, and that limits our ability to know where, where critical vessels are, like branches off the carotid artery, or where the um, or the depth of our tumor. And so, essentially, what happens is that we do see a positive margin rates, uh, depending on the study, uh, that can be up as high as 20%. And that's in institutions where uh, their volumes are, are you know it, it correlates with volume as we would expect. 
uh, and we see uh, bleeding rates uh, of 5 to 7 percent, um, which most bleeding hemorrhage events after these surgeries are not critical, but, they, um, but we have, there have been several deaths due to uh, hemorrhage uh, from these surgeries that have been reported in the literature. And in fact, just for my own, yeah, it's still going, but it's, I think it's getting there. From my own experience, uh, the first year, uh, I had been doing this for about a year, and um, I had a patient uh, who had a tonsil cancer that we resected. His surgery went very smoothly. We had no issues. He was in the hospital for two days, uh, and we were going to discharge him the next day. And uh, he all of a sudden developed massive bleeding. Uh, and unfortunately, we were not able to resuscitate him. He passed away. Um, and uh, so that, at that point, I almost uh, decided to stop doing these, these cases uh, and sort of go back to our conventional approach. But um, uh, instead, I think the thing that was a, a motivating factor for this research was that particular event and that patient to help me understand uh, how we can do these surgeries more safely. I have never had this problem with my laptop before. I'm totally sorry. I don't know why it's doing this. So basically, based off that experience, um, uh, finally, uh, we, uh, uh, we started thinking, could we use something like uh, image guidance to help us uh, improve the safety and efficacy of these operations? Could we, use, um, the, uh, uh, could we use the imaging that we get on these patients to somehow help us uh, uh, see what's going on uh, during the surgery? Okay, sorry about that. I think we're back in action here. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, So I sort of talked about this uh, earlier, so the limitations with the hemorrhage and the positive margins. Um, and again, uh, the deaths that have been reported, including at our own institution. Um, so, the, uh, so one of the questions, so, so really the, uh, this kind of illustrates what I was talking about. So when we, um, when we do these uh, surgeries, um, 
this is a tongue-based tumor, and we're using the robot to resect it here. The video, for some reason, is not working, but I think that's probably okay. Uh, and then this is a, uh, another tongue-based tumor, and we're using the laser to resect it. But in both examples, as you can see, again, inside-out approach. So we don't know where the tumor is and what the depth of the tumor is um, based on, uh, on this approach. Um, and so we can look at our, our, um, our imaging, our preoperative imaging, and we can see where the tumor is with respect to the carotid or how deep the tumor goes. And it requires us to sort of mentally transpose those images into what we're seeing uh, endoscopically. Um, and so the, the idea was that there's got to be a better way to do this. Uh, and could we use technology that already exists um, to help us uh, with, uh, to, to do these surgeries more safely, specifically using something called image-guided surgical navigation. So, and I'll talk about this in a minute just to explain what it is, but basically this is a technology that allows you to use your preoperative images to sort of navigate the, the intraoperative anatomy. It's been successfully used uh, in reducing complications in sinus and skull-based surgery, and it's been actively uh, researched in other areas. And so really the idea would be to use the preoperative images to localize the vascular structures and to help assess our tumor extent and margins. Uh, so an example uh, of how this is applied is in skull-based surgery. So this is a, a tumor of the olfactory groove kind of extending down into the sinus cavity. Uh, uh, this is the patient sort of looking right out at us. Uh, historically, we would do uh, an open approach with a, a, a craniotomy and a what we call a rhinotomy, where we make an incision along the face to kind of move the nose out of the way, and you'd have to cut through a lot of bone to kind of get to this space just to take this tumor out. Uh, so we've, um, uh, with the benefit of uh, endoscopes, we can actually work uh, through the nose and take these tumors out all endoscopically. Uh, this is just a, a lab showing our residents uh, practicing this technique. Um, and where navigation is really helpful is that we're still, again, the endoscopic approach to these tumors in the skull base is also an inside-out approach. So we don't know where the optic nerve is. We don't know where the eyes are. We don't know where the skull base is exactly. Uh, and so we can use this image guidance. And image guidance is basically made up of several components. So we have an intraoperative tracker. Uh, we have a reference frame that's attached to the patient. Uh, and, and you can know where your tracker is with respect to that reference frame. And that information is picked up by a tracking system, which is fed into a computer that basically takes your preoperative images and it, um, it localizes where the tracker is on those images so you have a direct correlation of what you see anatomically. Um, so this is kind of the system in, in, uh, at work. So here we have a, the endoscope uh, is placed uh, through the nose as well as a tracking suction that we are using uh, and you can see the tracking suction on the monitor, and, but you can also see the, the CT images that are changing as the suction is being moved. And so we can see where the base of skull is, we can see where the tumor is, we can see where the orbits are, and so we can conduct the surgery in a much safer manner, especially uh, if we are less, ex less experienced surgeons. And so the idea was, can we take this technology and adopt it to uh, transoral surgeries? So one of the critical features about how this, making this work is what's called image registration. So this is really taking the, the uh, imaging and mapping that, that imaging space to what's going on in reality, the physical space. So what we normally do is we'll take a pre-op CT of sinuses, 
we, uh, in the system, we create a 3D reconstruction of that, and we match that surface anatomy to the patient's surface anatomy. Uh, and that's highly accurate within two millimeters. Um, the, uh, the, the nice thing about this is that this imaging, this does not change once the patient's asleep. So this, this is the same patient as this one. This CT scan was obtained uh, preoperatively, and this CT scan was obtained during surgery. You can see the endotracheal tube right there, perhaps. Uh, but as you can see, there's really no change in this anatomy here as a result of instrumentation of the patient for the placement of the breathing tube and the anesthesia. So this scan will accurately represent the operative reality in our patient. However, for transoral surgeries, the situation is a lot different. Uh, when the CT, the pre-op CT does not reflect the intraoperative reality. So this is a standard pre-op CT scan, same patient who now has a laryngoscope down their throat, as I showed you earlier, and uh, you can see an extensive amount of soft tissue deformation here and a breathing tube there. Same on these sagittal views. Uh, this is the pre-op scan, and this is the intra-op scan with the laryngoscope down the throat, and you can see there's tremendous amount of changes, deformation, and displacement, and this will make it impossible to register our preoperative imaging to the intraoperative state. <coughs> Um, so inspired by the work of uh, uh, Keith Paulson and Dave Roberts, we had sort of a what-if thought, uh, which was uh, what if we could take our preoperative scan and, uh, and take some uh, information that we can acquire intraoperatively uh, without, you know, without having a scanner in the room, but just taking uh, surface uh, positional measurements or other types of information and somehow feed this into some deformation algorithm of some sort. Um, and then create a virtual deformation of this image to this image to reflect what's really going on intraoperatively. Um, and uh, so Ryan Halter, who I had worked with on a couple of other projects, we, we had been discussing this and we thought we would apply for a synergy grant. Uh, and uh, and that, uh, this was the title of the, of the grant, Improving Transoral Surgical Outcomes Through Intraoperative Image Guidance. Uh, so, um, and we received this grant in 2014. Uh, Ryan recruited uh, uh, our brilliant graduate student, Dennis Wu, who's been sort of the backbone of, of this whole project and uh, who makes everything work. I don't know how, uh, but he does it. Um, and the, the, the main outcome measure, so what we were trying to achieve was to be able to visualize and quantify this deformation and displacement. So we wanted to see, you know, what does thing, what do things look like when we put our laryngoscope in these patients and we put them in suspension? What's happening to the mandible? What's happening to the tongue, the vessels, um, you know, all of these structures? And so uh, this was the goal is to get images that look like this, which is actually from one of the patients in the study. So we came up with a protocol uh, that um, basically uh, um, uh, recruited patients uh, from the head and neck tumor clinic who were... Uh, who either had newly diagnosed or suspected tumors of the larynx and pharynx. These patients uh, were placed under anesthesia. Once they were intubated and asleep, we would obtain a CT scan of the patient uh, in the non-instrumented state. And then we would put our laryngoscope in and put it in suspension. And then we would obtain another CT uh, to represent the intraoperative state. So we could see where, where the deformation was going with these two, uh, these two images. Uh, and to be able to do this, we uh, are very fortunate to have access to the CSI, the Center for Surgical Innovation here, uh, which is a really unique uh, operating theater that offers two uh, types of imaging modalities, CT and MRI, and is really an amazing uh, research facility 
uh, and I don't think we would have ever gotten this thing off the ground uh, without access to the CSI. Uh, so uh, we, we ran into our first uh, problem with the first patient, um, and that was that uh, we had too much artifact from the laryngoscopes that we were using. So our, the laryngoscopes are made of metal, and metal does not creates artifact on CT. Now, we had thought about this ahead of time, and we had done some phantom studies and thought that we would be okay uh, with the, and based on the phantom information, but it really did not pan out. And so um, Dennis uh, went to task to um, create a CAD model of our laryngoscope, uh, and, uh, and then he 3D printed uh, this, uh, uh, this prototype uh, made of plastic and then made changes to it to, to account for the, um, the difference in materials and the, and the pressures that are applied when you apply the laryngoscope. And then uh, we were able to identify a um, FDA-approved material that is uh, it's approved for mucosal contact. So they use it in dental offices for prostheses and that sort of thing. And so we were able to print these laryngoscopes with this, uh, it's called Med 610. It's a material that we can then use for applying to patients. Uh, and the results were really very, uh, very good. We were very happy with this. So saw a lot of artifact on our, our, uh, with our metal scopes and saw absolutely no artifact on our, um, our uh, new 3D printed laryngoscopes. And we also could get MR images that were just uh, uh, outstanding without any problems. So the next ta uh, task was then to uh, recreate the suspension arm that I showed you earlier. So this is a device that holds the laryngoscope in place um, and it has a little uh, knob here and a worm gear. So you turn that knob, and basically that makes the uh, is it doing it? Okay, good. That makes the laryngoscope kind of angle up and back. And uh, and so when you that uh, we need that that upward rotational force to be able to lift up the larynx uh, and the tongue base to be able to achieve better exposure. Uh, and so. Again, uh, we uh, uh, Dennis was uh, did a uh, created a um, a uh, uh, basically a prototype of that same uh, type of device, uh, which is 3D printed. Uh, in fact, you can print all three of these pieces together. Uh, you don't have to put them together, which I thought was quite fascinating in and of itself. Uh, but we could create a 3D uh, printed suspension arm that was again MRI and CT compatible, as you can see it here. Uh, and that's, that's uh, hooked up to this, uh, this platform that sits over the patient. And this whole thing is designed to fit within the bore of the CT uh, scanner and the MRI. And so we had developed our, our laryngoscopy suspension system, and we could uh, effectively do these, uh, do these images. Uh, um, there we go. Okay. So... Um, so then the next step was then, once we had acquired our, our pre-op and our intraoperative images, was to somehow register these images so that we could then measure the displacement and deformation. So we created a, a common uh, coordinate system based on the skull, because the skull really doesn't change when you do these procedures, and so we have that standard reference frame, and then we can measure uh, how the tongue moves, how the mandible moves, and everything else with respect to that. Uh, the, all the patients that were recruited to study were, were uh, adults in the head and neck clinic. Uh, we intentionally recruited only edentulous patients because we didn't want to have any artifact from dental amalgam. Uh, and uh, so we recruited eight patients who had not had any prior treatment and five patients who had had a history of radiation or chemotherapy and radiation. And this is just kind of a superimposed uh, 
uh, all eight patients with their uh, deformations, both pre- and post-op, superimposed on each other. Uh, and we were able to appreciate uh, the uh, displacement of the bony structures and deformation of the soft tissue, specifically the base of tongue, so, or the, the entire tongue. That was segmented out. Uh, we, were, we consistently, when we placed our laryngoscope, always placed it pushing the tongue to the left so that we could sort of see how that varied among patients. And for the most part, the fairly similar uh, deformation displacement in our non-irradiated patients. So these are all patients that had not received any radiation. Uh, what was really interesting is what we found in our radiated patients. So <clears throat> as many of you know, <clears throat> radiation therapy to the head and neck, uh, especially something like a tongue-based tumor, uh, will create fibrosis in the tissues of the head and neck. So the muscles are, are not as pliable, the, the mucosa is not as pliable, um, everything is, just, is a little stiffer than it was before. And if you ask any anesthesiologist, they will tell you that the radiated patients are a more difficult intubation. So they're harder to put a breathing tube down because they, when they put their, their laryngoscope in to expose the larynx, it's just tougher to get that exposure. So um, being one to believe all my, my uh, anesthesiologists, we actually were able to quantify what they are seeing uh, clinically. So this is a view of the mandible from the side. The red arrows are, are the radiated patients, and the blue arrows are the non-irradiated. And um, you can see this is the mandible in its, uh, its non-instrumented state. This is the mandible uh, after, uh, during <coughs> suspension laryngoscopy in the non-irradiated, where it's uh, sort of brought anteriorly for the most part. And then here we can see the irradiated patients where the mandible is uh, sort of displaced more inferiorly and not as anterior as you would expect. Uh, and it's that anterior, uh, if anybody's ever done a resuscitation, they always talk about doing a mandibular thrust, moving the mandible forward to open up the airway. And in fact, we're not able to do that in the radiated patients as easily. Uh, the same with our, our hyoid bone, which is this structure right here. The hyoid is kind of a nice surrogate for the larynx. Uh, so, because wherever the hyoid goes, the larynx will go. And because uh, the larynx is, is uh, suspended from it. Um, and so we saw... Again, here's our, our uninstrumented state. The, um, uh, the, the uh, uh, non-radiated patients uh, had displacement sort of inferiorly and anteriorly of the hyoid. And then the radiated patients had this very different picture of, of a more posterior and inferior displacement. And these are all fairly significant um, uh, differences uh, in this very small group of patients. Uh, but it really kind of validated what we see clinically in patients that are difficult uh, to intubate. But more importantly, it, um, it um, made us think a lot more about uh, patient characteristics as we're trying to develop this deformation model. So what are, what are the patients, uh, what's the patient's airway grade? What's their neck circumference, their BMI? Have they had previous radiation before? All of these things were gonna become important as we're trying to develop these, these uh, uh, deformation models. And so then uh, we sort of took a little bit of a detour um, as we were thinking about this. I think one day in the lab we were like, well, how bad are we at, at localizing these things? I mean, you know, I'm a surgeon. I've got an ego. I think I can hit pretty much anything, right? So, but we wanted to know, like, what is, what's, the, um, what's the current state? You know, are we really that bad as surgeons or are we good at localizing stuff? And if we're really good at localizing, then what the hell are we doing? Maybe we should do something else. So we, uh, we got a, a Prouty grant to look at this. Um, 
It was a cadaver study, and what we did is, this is with uh, Dave Pastel from Radiology and, and Ryan. Uh, Dave placed these, um, these little beads, these radiopaque beads, and it's hard to maybe see on the screen there, but uh, placed them in little submucosal sites uh, throughout the throat, so in the base of the tongue, the larynx, the lower part of the pharynx. So they were submucosal. You couldn't see them if you looked down the throat with a laryngoscope. Uh, so those were placed uh, in those various sites. And then I strong-armed or recruited very gently uh, four of my attendings uh, in my clinic and three residents. Uh, in fact, they were really excited to do this study. They, they really got into it uh, to do this localization task where we would basically present them with a pre-op scan. And then we'd say, okay, uh, the, there's a, the, a laryngoscope is placed in this cadaver. Here's, an, here's our, our endoscope. I want you to take these little pins and place them where you think these beads are located. Okay, based only on the CT, uh, the pre-op CT. So basically forcing uh, the subjects to mentally register the pre-op images to the intraoperative state. Okay, and, uh, and then we, we uh, got that information, we took all the pins out, and we didn't tell the subjects what, what the results showed, and then we showed them a, a, an intraoperative scan uh, with the laryngoscope in pay, place, and we said, okay, now do the same thing. Okay, and, um, and use the intraoperative images to localize those beads, the thinking being that the intraoperative images might give you uh, uh, better accuracy because you can correlate where the bead is with respect to the laryngoscope, and that reflects your operative reality. And again, the subjects were all blinded to those results uh, at each stage. So here you can see uh, this is one of the beads that uh, Dave placed uh, kind of in the uh, base of tongue. Uh, this is the displacement of that bead with the intraoperative CT. Uh, these are the little pins that are placed. So this is an endoscopic view. This is the epiglottis here, and that's the tongue base. And these are little pins that the, the subjects would place where they thought the bead was located. And then we would scan the head, and we would segment out the bead and the pin, and we would be able to measure that distance between the, the pin and the bead. Uh, same thing with the intraoperative scan. And uh, we looked at a number of different measurements, the me most important one being this measurement from the tip to the uh, this Euclidean distance between these two, called, which we call the target localization error. And what we found was, uh, was pretty interesting. So overall, uh, we missed targets by about 12 millimeters. So that's, that's a lot. <laughs> so we're not as good as we think we are. Uh, and uh, although the beads are very small, I have to say. But anyway, we do miss the targets. Uh, if we have just the pre-op scan, we're off by about 12 millimeters for all anatomic sites and for uh, any experience level on average. Um, if we, uh, if we get, but with the benefit of having an intraoperative CT, we do uh, have significant improvement in our localization by about three millimeters overall, but we're still about 10 millimeters off, so we're still not that great. Okay, uh, so what this study tells us is that we have work to do. We, we definitely need something to help us localize better uh, with just the preoperative scans. But just having an intraoperative image by itself is not going to be helpful. We need to be able to track where we are in space. We need to, be able to track our instruments so we can localize uh, at a more accurate, uh, uh, more localize things more accurately. So the limitation of the study was basically we, um, uh, you know, we couldn't allow the, the surgeons to manipulate the laryngoscope because uh, it, then we'd have to scan the, the heads every time, and so that sort of placed a, a little bit of a, constr a constraint on our subjects. Uh, who were doing it, and we didn't have the ability, we did not provide them the ability to track the instrument, which I think would have improved their accuracy even more. So, but this was a nice, uh, this sort of was food for thought, and it, um, 
so w what we did is we had um, uh, uh, we had a few subjects that um, were undergoing uh, transoral uh, laser resections of uh, benign and malignant tumors, uh, and uh, we actually used our instrument trackers, uh, uh, or we used our, our navigation system uh, to track uh, uh, instruments in these in, uh, to track our instruments in these patients and see. Uh, what, how, we, how accurate we were with our, uh, our ability to navigate intraoperatively. Uh, so these were patients where we, um, we placed our CT-compatible scope, uh, we placed fiducials on the patient, uh, and then we obtained an intraoperative CT uh, down in CSI, and we registered uh, the, uh, the patient to the intraoperative scan. So now we had a very accurate view, of, a picture of the patient during the intraoperative state. And we wanted to see how accurate would, are we uh, if we if we were able to have uh, the uh, imaging of the patient uh, during during the procedure? Uh, this is an example of the scope in place. Uh, these are the fiducials that were placed on the patient, uh, and then this is kind of the setup in the room with an endoscopic view and the radiographic view, similar to what you saw with the video I showed you earlier. Uh, and we were really pleased with the with what we saw. So basically. Uh, we were able to achieve a very high level of registration accuracy in the region of interest for all patients. So despite placing fiducials on the skin, uh, where you would think that things might shift a little bit, uh, there's a lot of soft tissue, but uh, these, when you place these fiducials on, the system creates a region of what they call registration accuracy, which is a sphere uh, around the fiducials. And our region of interest was right back here. So that's right within this sphere. And um, everything within the sphere is within uh, a millimeter or less uh, in accuracy. So we were able to get very high, uh, highly accurate registration in that area. Um, and then we uh, also just visually confirmed that we were able to get good registration accuracy uh, by placing a uh, tracking probe uh, at a different anatomic sites and seeing how it correlated with the imaging. So this right here is, uh, this is the larynx here, and you can see this little V is where the vocal cords are. Um, and basically, uh, the tracking probe is applied right at the, what we call the anterior commissure, where the two vocal cords come together. And that localization is spot on. The, you can barely make out the crosshairs there on the screen, but it's right where it should be. Same with this other patient. This is a tracking suction that we were using, and we got the same uh, degree of, of localization. So this is very promising. And then this is just an example of the tracking during surgery. So this is an epiglottic cancer. Uh, and we're using the tracking probe to kind of map out around around the tumor and see, um, you know, the, just to see how how good we are at being able to localize with this uh, uh, this same technology with this modality. So the, we we picked up a number of opportunities and of course limitations of this uh, this approach. Um, one of the big limitations is that we're not this triplanar view. Uh, is because it's so distorted from the laryngoscope is is harder to interpret. Uh, we're not used to looking at images uh, in uh, with with all this deformation, so it made it a little more difficult to interpret as we were as we were using the uh, as we were looking at these images as they were changing. So that was one of the issues. Uh, but some of the other issues um, to do this, you have to have intraoperative CT, which of course not every operating room has. Um, smaller tumors were a little harder to see on the CT scan. 
Um, and then we didn't do this for this study because we, we were just sort of, this is a proof of concept, but we, we, uh, if we wanted to reposition the scope, so let's say we were resecting tumor in one area and then we wanted to move the scope to, to then focus on another area, we would have to go through the whole process again. We'd have to rescan the patient, re-register them, and of course that exposes them to more radiation and uh, it takes up more operative time. Um, so, uh, and then the triplanar view that I mentioned. Um, and then the tracking instruments, of course, uh, need to be developed for specific transoral procedures. So I'll just give a quick summary of where we've come to date. Uh, so we started with basically uh, our goal of, of developing a system uh, to see if navigate, surgical navigation would improve safety and efficacy uh, in transoral surgery. So we developed a, a scope system that is CT and MRI compatible for studying this problem. We've visualized and quantified deformation in a series of patients and developed an understanding of the biological variables that are, that are in play as well as prior treatments. Uh, we have um, did a, uh, took a step back and looked at what the current state was and determined that, that our accuracy and localization could be improved upon. Uh, and we uh, demonstrated that, yes, we can get pretty reasonable accuracy uh, with intraoperative imaging if we have at our disposal uh, and uh, during transoral surgery. So what are the next steps? So the next steps are to develop uh, a predictive deformation model. And um, so there, there are two different sort of ways of approaching this. One is the accurate but computationally slow model, such as finite elements. Uh, the other is the computationally fast but not as accurate model, which is point-based deformation. Now, just for full disclosure, I am not an expert on these, uh, and I defer to Dr. Halter and, and my engineering colleagues to, to do for this, this part here. But as a uh, kind of a, a sort of a 30,000-foot view of, of, uh, of how this works, if we, for a finite element model, if we, it's basically we're taking a very complicated structure, be it the tongue, a bridge, uh, you know, a car, whatever, and we're breaking it up into smaller elements, and those elements have their own individual mechanical properties. And we can uh, map out the relationship of those elements uh, by creating these meshes. And so the, the mechanical properties in the tongue, of course, are the tissue properties that we're looking at. So the tissue properties uh, of the muscle in the tongue, uh, and there have been studies uh, in, in the physiology literature where they've done contraction studies of you know, frog muscles, and they've, they've come up with uh, these, uh, the different mechanical properties of these, of these muscles. But they're not patient-specific. Uh, and so what we really need is data on uh, patient-specific mechanical properties. So a patient with a big, beefy tongue is going to have different mechanical properties than a patient with a thin tongue. Or a patient who's been radiated is going to have different properties. Or a patient who had a prior surgery on their tongue and had you know, a partial glossectomy, part of it removed. So all of these properties have to be taken into account. So one of the ways of, uh, uh, that we think will work is to measure the forces that are applied by our laryngoscope against the soft tissues uh, of the tongue and the, and the rest of the pharynx and larynx and using those forces to then uh, ascertain what those mechanical properties uh, would be. Uh, and so uh, basically uh, our next uh, sort of study, uh, which uh, again we were fortunate to get another uh, Prouty grant for this, uh, is um, taking our standard laryngoscope, so now we're just using our conventional laryngoscope, and then fashioning an array of pressure electrodes on that, uh, on that um, laryngoscope wherever it's in contact with the patient. So along the, the palate, the, base, the tongue, the larynx, all of those sites. And we want to measure those pressures uh, in time. So as we're inserting the laryngoscope, 
as we're moving it around, as we're placing it, placing it in suspension, and then during the duration of the procedure, and to really measure what those pressures are and, how, and see how that can cor be correlated with the mechanical properties of the tissue. So we would be looking at patient-specific characteristics as well, prior treatment, the patients who have teeth, the patients who have big tongues, small tongues, uh, large BMIs, and so on and so forth, uh, and that will hopefully give us some information on, on the different pressure profiles that we see in these patients. Uh, the next step after that, hopefully, would be to then bring that into a model. Uh, and uh, as I said, there are different ways of approaching this. This is one possible uh, option. And this is a group uh, of, that we're starting to collaborate with at University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And they've, they've actually developed a hybrid sort of finite element multi-body model of the head and neck, which they call Frank. Uh, and um, it's a generic model, so it has generic uh, properties to it. But the neat thing about it is that we can take our uh, patient-specific information and import it into that model. So we can take uh, the CT images that we've taken and bring that into this uh, Frank model. They've already modeled out the tongue, the palate, all those sorts of things, and now we can bring our data in and uh, fine-tune it to the patient. Uh, so the goal ultimately down the road would be uh, to take uh, to repeat the same study that I showed earlier, the initial synergy study where we were doing uh, pre-op and intraoperative CT scans. But now we would take our pre-op and we would take our generic Frank model and we'd create a morphed Frank model. So that would take the patient information and incorporate it into the model. And then we would also have a what we call a smart laryngoscope, which is basically our, our uh, 3D printed laryngoscope which would have a pressure array built into it, as well as the ability to track the laryngoscope in space. So we know where it is at all times with respect to the patient. And the idea would be with this information and our, this model, we could get, develop predictions of what's going to happen with the deformation as we're putting the laryngoscope in. We're also going to take a, an intraop CT, which is our sort of ground truth, and we'll compare uh, this information with what we get from our model. So we'll be able to validate that study. So ultimately down the road, where, what would be the, the cool thing? What would be like the, the really great future state? So that would be the same endoscopic view that we have of the throat uh, with a, uh, what I think is a tongue-based character right there. I'm not sure what's going on right here. And heck, I don't know where the carotid artery is. So I can ask my Siri to tell me where the carotid artery is. And here's the carotid artery right here. Uh, Siri, where is the tumor extent based on the CT? Uh, it's right here. And in fact, Siri merged the PET and the MRI with all this to give me great imaging information uh, about the extent of the tumor. Uh, but, you know, there's also some areas around here that just don't look quite right, and I'm not sure about it. Well, I've got intraoperative fluores fluorescence as well, uh, a different study that we're, we're doing to see uh, where this microscopic or mucosal extent of disease would be beyond the confines of our tumor. And so ultimately, resecting to negative margins and getting, uh, avoiding the, uh, uh, the big red thing right here. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge uh, uh, this team that, uh, uh, you know, it's one of, the things is, one of the things I've learned in my career is always surround yourself by really smart people. And I've, I've managed to do that, and I'm very proud of that. So uh, Ryan Halter, who's been my co-PI throughout all this, uh, and Dave Pastel, who we brought on and has, has joined our group uh, with the, um, the cadaver study, Dennis, as I said, has been sort of the backbone of all of this. Um, and then we've got these brilliant medical students that we brought on, Peter, Kang, Arvin, and Christian, who've been uh, just fantastic. Um, uh, one of our ENT residents, Eric Eisen, 
Uh, Ji Yu Chang was an undergraduate that worked with us uh, uh, before, and then uh, Nithya Ramesh is with TDI and has been helping us with some of the um, uh, some of the statistical stuff. And then, of course, the folks uh, at uh, at CSI who've been instrumental in engineering in the machine shop. I also want to have a special thanks to Alan Green, who uh, initially encouraged me to even start embarking on this journey, uh, and to Sandra Wong, who uh, actually gave me the time to do the research. So uh, thank you very much, and I will entertain any questions. Yes. To distinguish on that last slide between the sort of microscopic manifestation of the disease versus the border of the tumor, mm -hmm. do you have to use two different imaging systems, or is there one imaging system that both of those? Are you talking about the the, the future state yeah, image? Uh, no, the the idea would be it would all be superimposed on your on your real time endoscopic view. So the idea is ultimately uh, this would all uh, be there if we if we call it up. Uh, and then um, as we're moving our scope around, all of that can change and shift uh, as we see the deformation in real time. You need a fluorescent imaging system, though, to do the reading, right? You need an MRCT to do the purple one, so you have to have... Well, the MRCT would be the images that we acquire pre-op. So all that data would be have been acquired, you know, with the patient down in radiology and then imported into our, our deformation algorithm. So we wouldn't need any intraoperative imaging. Uh, yes, we would need uh, some, for, so, some sort of system uh, intraoperatively that can detect the fluorescence, which uh, currently the Da Vinci actually has that built into its, uh, um, into its software. So, Yeah. Joe, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, but I, this is terrific. Thank you. I, I think it's a great example of, of how you know, a talented clinician who wants to try to push the envelope can partnered with research people to try to really get this done. And I am just delighted to see this and partnering with the Cancer Center. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just very exciting to see this happen. And, uh, you know, and the implications for our patients over time is just extraordinary. So, congratulations. Well, thanks. thanks very much. Well, thank you. I, I, I really have to say that the, the ability to work uh, with the engineering school has been, that, that's one of the great things about working at this institution is we have an amazing engineering school just down the road. Uh, with Williamson being here, a lot of the engineering folks are now in-house, in so it's, uh, it's really easy to collaborate, and, uh, and that's been what has made this so much fun. So. All right. Yes. Great. I, I, I agree. It's just an example of you know, one of the great strengths of DARPA and DARPA Hitchcock is the ability to pull together all these disciplines. I, I think I noticed the residents improve their performance better than the attendants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you just speak to like, the training aspect of this? Well, I th yeah, I mean, we didn't really get into the training side of it, but I think that's, um, uh, you know, one of the things that sort of came out of that study was, uh, was actually... Um, uh, we developed a, um, uh, a special uh, uh, cadaver head holder, if you will. It kind of sounds a little gruesome, and I didn't really want to talk about it. But, um, but basically, one of the things that we, uh, to save cost, we, we ordered cadavers, but we only ordered the heads. Uh, so normally, you have to order the torso. 
And um, uh, Dennis and, and uh, GU and Peter came up with this this uh, apparatus to attach to the head to simulate the torso, basically. So, because when you do a laryngoscopy, the neck has to be an extension, and, and, and you have to be able to stabilize the head. And so, this system does that, um, and uh, and that's opened up a lot of possibilities for uh, a lot of training possibilities for our residents. Uh, we actually published uh, this uh, uh, this design, and, and um, a bunch of simulation groups around the country have contacted us. They, they talked to us at a, at a meeting about uploading our design to their websites and stuff like that. So there's, uh, there's a lot of potential for training residents uh, using these, these things. But the, the intraoperative imaging part, or the, just using the CT on the cadaver and, and showing to the residents where they were seeing, where, you know, where they thought they were localizing and where they were off, uh, I think that's extremely helpful. Uh, Dennis and Peter actually created a report card for each person that, that um, participated in the study, uh, and uh, they submitted that report card to, to each of the subjects. So they so everybody saw how they did and how they did with respect to their peers. Uh, so they could see areas where they could improve and stuff like that. Thank you, Joe, for a wonderful talk. And as the sun is shining and the temperatures are rising, I'm sure you're all thinking about cycling, golfing, and rowing. And the kickoff party for the Saudi is at 4 p.m. on Ruben 6. We'll see you there.